your Bibles today, we'll be in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. C.S. Lewis once wrote that an issue or a problem that we are, that we have as human beings isn't that we are satisfied overwhelmingly by the pleasures of this world or by the things of this world. But it's that we're not satisfied enough. Not, we're never satisfied by things. And the truth is that comes because we were created for something greater than what this world has to offer. We were created to accomplish things that God intended for us that we're unable to do without his power and without his help. When you look at the passage today, you might look at your title. You may have heard this passage preached today and and, and think this is a passage about governments or about paying taxes or about submission. And while I think that there are some applications there, I don't think that's what Matthew was intending as the main focus of this passage. I think what the main focus of this passage that Matthew was ultimately was talking about is worship. So with our time together, I want us to walk through this passage and to see how Matthew is actually trying to teach us about worship here. Before we begin, I want us to remember where we've come from. I want us to remember the context of our passage. Remember, this is Holy Week. It's still Tuesday. The last three weeks, we've been talking about three different parables. And each parable that Jesus has been given has been teaching us something new. If you remember, the first parable we saw taught us that those who repented would enter the kingdom of heaven. People like tax collectors and prostitutes. Two weeks ago, we saw that those who produced fruit would enter the kingdom of God. But those that would reject the cornerstone of the kingdom would ultimately be crushed. Last week we saw that the initial rejection of the kingdom led to an extended invitation to other guests. We learned that the kingdom would ultimately grow and that the wedding hall would eventually be filled because it's God who is sovereignly at the helm of it. This context is important for this passage because these parables, in these parables, Jesus has been rebuking and judging the religious leaders and the nation of Israel in a very explicit manner. And that begins a big part 
of the unfolding of the, of the events for the rest of the book. In the coming weeks, now that we've seen three parables, we'll see three questions coming from his enemies and his opposition. We'll see these questions come from three different groups of people. But each question is revealing more truth about who Jesus is as the Messiah. You might ask, how do you know this? How do you know that this is what the purpose of these questions are for? Well, because at the very end of the chapter, Jesus himself will ask a question. And it's a question about the Messiah. It's a question about himself. And it will silence his enemies. He'll use the end of the question, that last question, to put to rest who he is. But this week, we'll focus on the first question. And what we want to learn today is this simple truth. This is a simple truth that we want to learn today, church, family. God is due the worship of all people. God is due the worship of all people. In our text today, we'll see three acts, three movements to help us understand this truth. And the first act is the enemy's enmity. The, enmity, the enemy's enmity. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now remember the context, church. Jesus has just got done telling these men that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from Israel, is going to be taken away from these religious leaders and given to another people. Can you imagine how you would feel if this was told to you? Can you imagine if you were a Pharisee, a religious, a religious leader of the Jewish law tradition? You would be furious. You would be angry. You would take a, an offense to what Jesus has been saying. So look what they did, verse 15. It says they went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Mark says that they were looking to trap him. Luke says that spies were sent who pretended to be sincere. Why? Because they wanted to catch Jesus. They wanted to deliver him up to the authority of the governor. That's what Luke actually tells us. The Pharisees were looking to get rid of Jesus. They were looking to get rid of their problem. They were looking for Rome's help. 
This isn't the first times that the religious leaders have plotted to get rid of Jesus. Do you remember Matthew 12? Jesus heals a man on the, on the day of Sabbath. And they become so angry that Matthew says on verse 14 of chapter 12, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This was part of the plan of the Pharisees from a long time ago. The plan of the Pharisees was to murder Jesus. This wasn't just metaphorical murder like Jesus had talked about in Matthew chapter 5. No, 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 no. They actually wanted to murder Jesus. Their actual intent was murder because they hated Jesus. Because they had enmity with the Son of God. But the Pharisees didn't go on their own. Look at verse 16. It says that he sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? Well, we don't know much about them besides the fact that these were individuals who were loyal to Herod's family. They were a political faction. They had a political agenda. We met one of the Herods at the beginning of Matthew we met another one in Matthew 14. It was Herod Antipas. You remember this Herod? This was the Herod that killed John the Baptist. He was the ruler of the northern part of Israel. But in the south, there was no Herod. He had already been removed. But instead, the Roman Empire had put in Pontius Pilate. It's a name that you need to record for future texts here coming up, Pontius Pilate. But that's not, that's not who the Herodians were. They, they wanted a Herodian ruler. And so the Pharisees send them. Now you're probably thinking, why does this matter? Why does it matter that there are Pharisees, that there are Herodians? Well, it matters because the Pharisees were extremely anti-Rome. Pharisees were extremely anti-Rome. Rome had invaded their lands and was ruling over them. They brought in their pagan traditions and practices. They made them pay taxes like we'll see here in a bit. This is why the Pharisees looked down on the tax collectors, remember? That's what we've been saying this entire, this entire time through through Matthew, they, they disliked the tax collectors because they were servants of Rome. They were collecting money from Rome. These two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were enemies. You see that? They were, they were enemies. They were after different agendas. But here, they're working together. Why? Because they hated Jesus. They both needed Jesus out of the way. They needed the Herodians to come to entrap Jesus. To hear Jesus say something against Rome so that they might be witnesses. And look how they entrap or attempt to entrap Jesus. Look at their... Get the, what they say in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. 
You do not care about anyone's opinion or you are swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They ask this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? These words may seem sincere, but you remember Luke's told us that that's, that's what they pretended to do. They pretended to come with a sincere question. I think this is an important lesson for us today, church. The most detrimental attacks towards the church are not the outright and open attacks that we see. Those are to be expected. God's word tells us we ought to expect hatred from the world. But it's the enemy's subtle attacks and approaches that we have to be careful of. See, you might get on social media today and see posted all across of it information on how people are coming after the church. No duh. That's what God's words already told us. Those things should be expected. But the danger I see is how we are so concerned about the blatant and obvious vitriol that we're completely unaware of how social media leads us to gossip, leads us to slander, leads us to dislove the very people we've been called to love. It's the subtleties that we need to be careful of. Do you see how his enemies came? They came with sincerity. They approached him with flattery lips, but their hearts were far from him. But the question the Herodians ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, has major implications. There are two implications that it has. The first one is political. See, this tax was one that Jew Jewish people had a very clear reason of hating. If there was anything that united the Jewish people, it was uh, this hatred for this specific tax. Actually, this tax had led to a Jewish revolt 20 years before this happens. This tax was an occupational tax. It was a, it was a tax on every Jewish person who was 14 years and older. If you were 14, you were taxed just for being alive. The invaders, think about it, the invaders were attacking the people that were subject to them so that they could use the money to continue to subject, subject these people. It was such an offensive tax. But it also had theological implications. See, the Jewish people also had a religious issue with the tax. The coin had an image. Had an image of the Caesar of this time, Tiberius. And there was a, an image and a phrase on one side of the coin that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. You see, there, 
This was the view that, that the Caesars had casted all over Rome, all over the empire. That Caesars were marketed as divine beings. And that the empire was supposed to worship them. On the other side of the coin, there was another phrase that read Pontific Maximus. This means high priest. Can you already hear why the Jewish people would have a problem with this tax? The theological implication for the Jews was they saw the payment of this tax with this coin as a blasphemous act. They saw payment of this tax as an idolatrous act. They thought, if we give this tax, it's as if we're worshiping Caesar. So you see the dilemma of the question? If Jesus answers one way, he offends the Jewish people. If he answers another way, he offends, he offends the Roman Empire. But Jesus said, no, the Herodians would have taken this information all the way back to Rome. Remember, this was the goal, to get rid of Jesus. Their approach here wasn't out of sincerity, but it was out of hatred. But now we see how Jesus responds. And it's here that we see the Messiah's identity. It's here that we see now the Messiah's identity. Look at verse 18. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? It's subtle here, but Matthew actually gives us another glimpse into the identity of Jesus and his divinity. Look at your Bibles, church. Look at verse 18. Do you see where? Look at what Jesus says. Why do you put me to the test? This is an allusion to something Jesus has already said before in chapter 3 of Matthew. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. For you and I, for the readers of the gospel of Matthew, this should be the connection that we make when we read this. Matthew is telling us, and Jesus is telling us again, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. In this passage, in this one little verse, Jesus is communic communicating to us again that he is the Son of God. People say, Jesus never claims to be God. No, no, no. He does it over and over and over again. Look at the characteristics of Jesus in this passage. Verse 17. We see that Jesus is true. The, the, the Herodians come and say, Jesus, we see that you are true. While this wasn't sincere, it also was not a lie. Jesus is true, and there is nothing truer than Jesus. There is nothing, church, more dependable than Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that he says is true, and his word 
His word is objectively true. This is what it means when the Herodians say he does not care about anyone's opinion or that he's not swayed by appearances because the words of Jesus are not fickle. They're not challenged by the fear of man. He speaks because he is the very word of God. Church family, this is why you can rest today in Jesus. This is why you can build your entire lives on the words of Jesus. Because his words are true. Look at verse 17. He also teaches us the way of God. They say he also teaches us the way of God. Why? Because he is God. He knows the way. This reminds me of the words of Peter in John chapter 6. This is easily one of Peter's most famous proclamations. Many of, his, many of Jesus' disciples are leaving him after he's delivered a difficult message. And Jesus asks them, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you're here wanting to hear how to obtain eternal life, abundant life, if you're here wanting to hear about the presence of joy in your life and, then, and pleasures forevermore, I'm here to tell you it's found in Jesus alone. Only he has the way to God. But notice this verse, verse 18. Jesus was aware of their malice. How? How was he aware? Remember what Luke says, they pretended to be sincere because Jesus is the righteous judge who knows the hearts of man. This is why he calls them hypocrites. This is, this is why he, this is a humbling reminder for us today, church. We can't hide our hearts from God. He knows your heart right now. If you're bored here, waiting for this to end, because your desire is to catch a game, he knows. But if you're here in sincerity, in humility, wanting to just hear from God, he knows. He also knows, church, if you are heavy laden this morning, if you are discouraged or tired this morning, church, he knows your heart because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. We've seen the enemy's enmity. We've seen the Messiah's identity. And now I want you to focus on the people's duty. I want you to focus on the people's duty. Look at verse 19 through 21. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. They said to him, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Jesus begins to answer the question. And so he asks for a coin and he asks, whose image and likeness on it? And they answer the question. Because everybody knew the answer. It was Caesar. But notice that Jesus answers the question and changes one little word. The Herodians asked, was it lawful? Was it right? 
But Jesus here changes the word to render. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render means to pay or to give that which is due. To pay or to give that which is due. Give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar, but give to God what is owed and due to God. But what is due to God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. What is God dude? This is another instance where the beauty of Matthew is seen again, church. I am telling you, every time, every passage, there is something more beautiful about this book. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to people who grew up hearing and learning about the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience here in this passage. Disciples of the Pharisees. This is vastly important because how do we determine what was due Caesar? How did the text teach us what was due Caesar? We used a coin. He used a coin. He grabbed the coin, saw the image. Why? Because the coin bore the image and likeness of Caesar. Church, where has God placed his likeness and his image? Where has God placed his likeness and his image? The Jewish listeners, the readers, they would have, they would have heard these words and thought immediately of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And so every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man and female, he created them. You and I, church, were created in the image of God. We bear his likeness. This is the original design of creation. It doesn't matter if you're here and you believe or don't believe. You and I were created in the image of God. Why did God do that? Why did God create us in his image? Because it was in the original design of creation that his image bearers, would establish dominion over the earth, multiplying his image across the face of the earth so that his glory would cover the earth in the same way the waters do. We were created in his image to bring him glory. What does God do, church? He is due worship and glory. Worship does not just mean the praise of our songs, the singing that we do. It definitely includes that, but it is not just that. No, 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 no. Worship is much more. It's actually the rever reverential act of submission and homage before the divine sovereign. It's the reverential act of submission and homage before the divine sovereign. It's a humble posture of acknowledging who God is. And it's to say, you, O Lord, my God, 
are God, and I am not. But isn't this exactly the opposite of what the religious leaders were doing? We've seen the religious do this for weeks now. They've lived in such a way that not that has completely dismissed who God, who Jesus is. I wonder, church, what has been the disposition of your hearts toward God lately? Have you lived in such a way that not only demonstrates the fulfillment of our creation, but of your redemption? I wonder, church, when was the last time you and I, when we approached our God in such a humble manner, where we left the walls of this building to live in such a way where we sought the glory of God in all that we did. So that we could come together the following week as his people redeemed by the blood of Jesus to offer the praise and glory that's due his name. Not because it's convenient for us. Because nothing has interrupted our Sunday morning, so we'll just go and gather with his people. Not because the service and the things of this room have been catered for us. No, 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 no. Solely because he is worthy of the glory due his name from his people. I wonder, I wonder. This is why we prayed this this morning, church. As a people, we prayed this. We want to be a people united in the worship and glory of our God. Nothing else. But I want you to notice how this ends, church. Look at verse 22. They marveled. They, when they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. How did it end? It ended with his enemies giving God what he was due. They marveled. They left in awe. Luke says they became silent. Have you ever been so, have you ever been left speechless because you were just too busy marveling? It doesn't always happen. They marveled. Do you see how the story ends? Not only in this section, but in the great big story of God's word, Paul tells us at the very end, whether you're a child of God or you're an enemy of God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because he's due the glory and worship of all things. The question is, Will you worship in glory among the favorable presence of God or from a place where you've been casted away? How should we respond today, church? Well, if, it, if you're not in Christ today, if you don't believe today, if you've been acting as a hypocrite today, my first point was the enmity of the enemies. 
The word enmity means hatred. It was a very purposeful word that I used. Because it comes from Genesis 3. When God causes, curses the snake, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, after the fall, all mankind sinned. The Bible says that we were all children of wrath. Paul says we were hostile towards God. We were all enemies of God. And if you're here today and you do not believe Jesus Christ does not reside in you, his spirit does not abide in you, you today are an enemy of God. But in this very verse, it's promised there would be one who would come and save us from this enemy. Who would come and save us from our sins. See, God, being rich in his mercy, sent this Jesus, this Messiah, to die in our place for our sins. So that all that would receive him, who believes in his name, he would give them the right to become children of God. If you're here today and you do not believe in Jesus, I would urge you, believe in Jesus Christ and he will save you. At the end of the service, you can come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Kurt or Pastor Bill. Let us know you want to be saved. We want to, we want to show and teach you what God's word says. But if you're in Christ... How, how might you respond? I want to challenge you today and this week. Will you seek to fulfill the purpose for which you were created? Would you just consider that this morning? Ask yourself, have I this past week fulfilled what God created me to do and what he saved me to do? That's your response today, is to leave here and to obey what you were created for and what you were saved for, church. Give our God glory and enjoy him all of the time that you're given here on earth. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As we continue this morning, we are going to partake of the supper. And we are going to worship our God through the proclamation of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Church family, each time we take the Lord's Supper, we want to direct our attention and our affections and our senses to what Christ has done for us. We also want to remember where he has brought us and where he is going to take us. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we see this. We want to partake today as we're told and instructed to remember what our Lord did in going to the cross in our place. 
We are also instructed to remember the present reality that we've been brought together in Christ Jesus, in his body. So this is a meal of family. This is a meal of unity. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 tells us this. It says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Those means every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the unity we have in Christ Jesus. We are not different ABF groups. We are not different generations. We are not different social economic classes. We are not different ethnicities. No, 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 no. We are one because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're being reminded of today. At this time, I want to invite our deacons and the musicians to prepare the table. As we partake together, I want to share what our heart as a church is about who we believe this meal is for. We understand from God's word that this meal is for believers in Jesus who are in good standing. If you're visiting with us, you're a member of another church that believes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we invite you to partake and join us today. But if you've never given your life to Jesus or you're not in good standing with the church, we would ask you to abstain from taking today of the Lord's Supper. And instead, watch the testimony of those around as we declare Jesus Christ has died for us, he has saved us, and he satisfies us this morning. For those of us who are in Christ, we also come to this Lord's Supper together with great joy in our hearts, but also with great reverence and sober-minded us. 1 Corinthians would tell us that we need to examine ourselves and discern if there is anything in our lives that would contradict the testimony of our faith. And so we want to do that here in this moment. We're going to pray here in this moment. I'm going to ask you to join us, church. Would you just take this time to reflect and to pray and to just ask the Spirit to, to bring about sin and to use this time to confess it, that we might approach the table in a worthy manner. Father, we come thankful for Jesus Christ that we're able to come as a family to partake. But Lord, we're asking that you would search our hearts. Would you bring about any sin that is present that we have failed to confess? Father, we confess that we are not perfect, that we do make mistakes, that our attentions are not always set on you, our affections are not always set on you. So Father, would you forgive us today? We come believing your word that you are faithful and just to forgive us today. And so, Lord, would you help us to walk in the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, knowing that our sins have been paid for, that our shame has been paid for, that our guilt has been paid for. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.